Good morning, everyone. Appreciate you inviting me. Thanks very much. It's always uh, good to meet as men, and I think this is one of the things that we miss, isn't it? I was uh, jealous the other day. I was in a, um, a Sunset Grill, and there were a group of guys in there all gathered, you know, and I thought, oh, I miss that gathering as men. Um, I was there with my wife, so it was just as good, I think. <laughs> I want to share with you today, not just a testimony, but this is my story. This is my, my journey of not just how I came to Christ as a young man, but also how the Lord has been working in my life and how he's led me over a number of years. Um, I want to read from a, a book, one of the books that I often use in men's groups. I, I've taught through it several times, and I'm going to be using it next week. We have an AGC leadership initiative called Establish, launching next week, Expand and Establish Your Leadership. And Reggie McNeil wrote this book, A Work of Heart, Understanding How God Shapes Spiritual Leaders. And I think it's not just ministry leaders, it's how God shapes the heart of a man. And we, we have some uh, disparaging comments about men in our society today. And I think this, this book has really helped give a biblical perspective. And I just want to read a couple of quotes here. He says, being created in the image of God, we understand that we are all created in the image of God. Being created in the image of God means in part that we have been pre-wired by God to hunger for community, for being together. He goes on to say, talking about Jesus, and Jesus as a man and Jesus as God. He says, from eternity past, Jesus did his work in community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He decided to do this work in time and space and on earth in community. He called 12 men to himself. Not only did Jesus shape that early community, but he was also shaped by them. Had this not been the case, the first disciples would not have been a true community. And I think this idea can sometimes get overblown of what is a community. It's not just a group of guys. It's that we have been created to be in fellowship, to be with one another. The iron sharpens iron aspect of being together. And so really, as I share my story, my story is not my story. It's the story of the men that God has placed in my life from an early age to the present. And I want to begin by sharing some of the sad stats that we find in our world today related to men. We talked about this a little bit last year with Kevin Mahan when he shared. But there are some sad things that we need to understand. The Navigator Ministries has a Bible study called Every Man a Warrior. And in that series, they give some, some sad statistics of Christian men. We're not talking men in the world, we're talking Christian men. And they say, and they've done studies on this, for every ten men in any given church, nine will have kids that leave the faith. Eight will not find their jobs or their life satisfying. Six will only make minimum payments on credit cards and live their adult life in debt. Five will have major problems with pornography. Four will get divorced. And all ten will struggle to balance family, life, and work. That's coming from inside the church. That's years of study of men in churches. The Washington Area Coalition for Men's Ministries states this. Now, this is a U.S. stat, but I believe it's probably similar in Canada. Fewer than 10% of churches are able to establish and maintain a vibrant men's ministry. Think about that. Less than 10% of churches are able to establish or maintain a vibrant men's ministry. My daughter and son-in-law live in the U.S., and they go to a large church. And it's a good church. I've been there. Excellent preaching to the Word. Excellent outreach. All kinds of ministries inside and outside the church. What they're lacking is a men's Bible study. A church of over 900, and there is no men's Bible study. How do you strengthen the foundation of your church without men studying the Word? Are you getting a lot of feedback here? Building Brothers says men tend to find their identity in their job, what I do. It's interesting when you meet somebody for the first time. So what do you do? That's the first question. And your identity is built in what you do. Their identity is found in sexual prowess, because real men always have great sex. 
And their self-sufficiency, I walk alone, I'm a self-made man. Their emotional strength, big boys don't cry. Promise Keepers Canada, this is a Canadian stat, says that the average Christian man watches TV for how many hours a week? What do you think? Give me a number. How many average hours does a Christian man in Canada watch TV per week? 20, exactly. When I first heard that stat, Kirk Giles, a president of Promise Keepers, shared that with our AGC leadership team. I thought, no way. And so I went to him, I said, well, you know, really, 20 hours a week? He said, think about it. You come home and you watch the news for an hour a day. Just an hour. There's seven hours. And after dinner, you may watch a movie or a hockey game or a baseball game. There's two hours. There's another 14 hours. Then there's channel surfing. Hour and a half a night. You realize guys spend an hour and a half a night just channel surfing, not watching any particular show. There's another, add all that, there's 26 hours right there. Before you know it, you've wasted 26 hours. How much time could you spend with your kids, with your wife, with other men, Bible study, studying for 26 hours a week? And if we look at our culture in general, the average Christian man today is insecure, inadequate, isolated, lonely, and fearful. He's casually related relationally with Jesus and others. He's casually related with his family at best. He has misplaced, misplaced priorities and rarely takes time to consider how to change his life. He usually works more than is needed. He's stressed out and hated, but doesn't think he can do anything about it, and he feels trapped like he's running on empty. That describes a lot of Christian men today. We're passive, we make excuses, and we've abdicated in our marital relationships, our family connections, and our church involvements. One of the greatest tragedies in North America is that we are one of the only cultures in the world today that has no marked ceremony from when a boy becomes a man. Think about that. In Canada, when are you a man? When are you recognized in your family or in your community as being a man, being responsible, being able to take a role that contributes to that society? We're one of the only countries in the world that doesn't have that. I've traveled to 32 countries around the world in my ministry over the last 30 years. And I've seen in many countries a ceremony, something that marks a transition between boyhood, childhood, and manhood. We lack that. Which is why we can say that, according to many psychologists today, adolescence in North America is up to and including age 32. Age 32. You're still, in some ways, considered an adolescent living in your mom and dad's basement, playing video games all day. Those are stat, sad stats. When I teach on leadership, I often ask the men I'm teaching or, or sharing with, I give them a piece of paper with three lines on it, and I say, list the three men, apart from your biological father, who have had a significant impact in your life and your spiritual growth. Well, I, I've stopped asking that because usually... Guys can't put one, never mind three. That's the sad part of being a man today. But I think there's good news. A Hartford Seminary study showed that the presence of involved men was statistically correlated to church growth, church health, and family harmony. Meanwhile, a lack of male participation is strongly associated with congregational decline. We can show studies that where men are involved in their local church, that church is a growing church. And so my testimony and my journey is really the story of the men God placed in my life. So I want to tell you about the three men that God has used to take a very rebellious teenager to a missionary in the Amazon, to the director of a mission agency, and now as the president of the AGC. Apart from divine intervention of the Lord bringing me to Jesus, these men have had a unique and significant impact in my life that I've tried to replicate in the lives of those God has brought into my life. 
I appreciated Steve reading that verse because I think in 1 Corinthians 16, that is and should be the life verse for every man. To be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, but let all that you do be done in love. I think also of the role of a man in the life of another man in Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Think about that. You need two instruments of the same material. Think of a chef as he sharpens his knife. The purpose was to develop and increase the usefulness of that instrument. There's many ways to sharpen a knife. You can use a flat stone. You can use a file. But only iron against iron gets that sharpness, that fine edge that makes that knife much more useful for its intended purpose. But there's also conflict, tension, and friction in that process. No relationship is all warm and fuzzies. There is conflict. There is tension. It's interesting. I was talking to somebody recently who's a a sailor, and we were talking about this at our leader gatherings the last couple of weeks. The best way to move a sailboat forward is not having the wind at your back. It's tacking into the wind. The very thing that opposes your forward movement is the greatest instrument to move you to where you want to go. And so sometimes relationships include conflict. They include friction. But this is my story. Three men that God placed in my life. The first man, his name is Ken. And this was the influence of a life in Christ. I met Ken when I was 15 years old, a very rebellious, angry teenager and a Bible-thumping high school teacher. But let me back up a little bit. I had a good life when I was born. Scottish father, Canadian mother. My mom stayed home. My dad worked. I have a younger brother a year, just about 14 months younger than me. We had a good life, so I thought. Then when I was six and a half years old, my dad died suddenly. My mom at 31 was a widow with two young kids. And I remember distinctly my uncle coming over and saying to us, you know, it's interesting the things you remember. And, my, you know, a typical late 60s, we were eating dinner on the coffee table in front of the TV, of all things, and we had hot dogs. And I remember for whatever reason, I was just mucking around and I wasn't eating. My mom kept yelling at me, eat your hot dog, eat your hot dog. And I was uh, picking at it, I wasn't really eating. My uncle came over said, I need to talk to you boys, took us in the back room and said that my dad was really sick and that God sent his angel to take him up to heaven and he's not coming home anymore. That was it. Scottish family, stiff upper lip, don't show your emotion. But he did say, now I want you to go out and tell your mom you love her and give her a big kiss. My brother ran out crying. I went back to the living room. I had to eat my hot dog. and I just shut down from that moment. Kept it inside. We didn't go to the funeral. Scottish family, stiff upper lip. We never talked about it. It's just like it didn't happen. And it was several years later before my mom took me to my dad's grave to see it for the first time. And I think I went from emotionally shutting down to angry and rebellion that just continued to grow. By the time I was in junior high, I was already having problems with the police, brought home several times by the police, Taken to the police station several times, started drinking at that age, started causing problems. Uh, and I mean, just the stuff that you wonder, what are you thinking? I remember one Halloween, we decided, hey, let's go up to the highway and throw chestnuts at cars. We did. And again, another trip to the police station. So I got to this point where I was in eighth grade and I was skipping more school than I was at. I had an Italian friend, Luigi Moroccoli, whose family ran a billiards parlor. And we spent most of our time there, and his sister Gina would write us notes why we couldn't be at school. My mom just didn't care. She had checked out. I had checked out. And so I spent most of grade 8 at a pool hall and was told that if I don't come to class, I'm not going to pass. I said, I don't care. And in the mid-70s, there was this thing about not failing kids because it hurts their feelings, right? It's not my fault. Society failed me. My dad died. I came from a broken home. And I just have bad friends. It's not my fault. And I just adopted that. Played a lot of pool. Didn't go to a lot of school. I still have my grade 8 report cards. I showed my daughter once. My first semester of 8th grade, I missed 38 days of school. My daughter said, what did Grandma say? I said, Grandma said nothing. 
Grandma just didn't care at that point. She had her own issues that she was dealing with. At the end of grade eight, I got kicked out of school, actually transferred to another school district. There were five of us that kind of hung around together. And we all got transferred to different school districts, and I was put into ninth grade in high school again because you couldn't fail, because that would hurt our feelings. And I met Ken almost by accident, or was it divine intervention? See, I had class scheduling problems, and I, I couldn't get my class schedule right, and I was in the wrong class, and the guidance counselor said, listen, everybody's got this problem. Just go to the classes that are on your schedule. We'll fix it next week. I said, okay. So my friends who had already had the class that I was going to said, Bill, don't go. This guy's just one of those born-again Christian Bible thumpers. Like, just skip the class. Let's go do something. I said, no, no, no I'm going to go because, you know, we all laughed at televangelists. After partying all weekend and having a hangover on Sunday morning, we'd watch these televangelists and just laugh and think it was just a big fraud. The faith healers and all of that. And my friends were right. Here is this teacher. He was a Bible thumper, talked about Jesus, quoted Bible verses. But he was a good teacher and I liked the class, so I decided to stay. Spiritually, I was lost. I had no interest in God, no interest in this Jesus that he talked about. But he would often quote John 3.16. And I thought, this guy is the same as these guys on TV, and I'm going to catch him. More for my own personal, yeah, I got you. I wasn't going to challenge him in class or anything. So I would go home, and I would write down these verses that he would quote. Jesus loved the whole world and gave himself for it. And that comes from John 3.16. I'd write down John 3.16. I had this little notebook I was keeping. I went home because I remembered... Somewhere in, in the back of my closet, I had gotten a little New Testament from the Gideons in fifth grade, and it was in there somewhere because I didn't throw at anything. I was a pack rat. And so I would look up, and I would find the index, and I'd find John, and I'd find 316, and I'd read it and say, well, okay, he's right on that one, but I'm going to catch him next time. And before I realized it, I was reading the Bible. Now, I still didn't believe it, I thought, well, anybody can read that and then quote it back. But there was something about Ken that was just different. He wasn't angry at our responses back to him. He wasn't retaliatory to the, the jokes we made about him. Now, Ken was a big man. He had been a former prison guard. He was about 6'5", about 350. He was just a large, massive man. He was pretty intimidating in and of himself. And here I was, a skinny little 15, 16-year-old making fun of him. He didn't get angry at us. He just loved us. He had a classroom full of guys like me that didn't want to be there. Most of us had come from different school districts. And I, later on, I kind of thought that this school was probably the repository for all of the delinquents that got shipped there. But Ken was different. He wasn't like the other teachers. He seemed to care about us. He seemed to have a genuine concern. He would always allow us to vent our views and then would calmly draw us back to why we were there. I don't remember much about his class. I remember a lot of the discussions we had. And we always tried to, to get him to, you know, trip him up as it were. I remember one question I asked him. I said, listen, my dad died when he was 34. What if I live till I'm 74 and I die and I go to heaven? I believe in your Jesus. How is it going to be in heaven that I'm an old man and my dad is a young man? Now, he didn't say, well, that's just a ridiculous question because in heaven there's no age. He just said, well, he said, let's think about that. And he was always drawing us in. I don't think he was overly preachy or condemning, although he could get kind of preachy sometimes. He had a really big KGV black Bible that he would bring and it sat right on his desk. And as I kept reading the Bible and trying to prove Ken wrong, God used his word to begin to convict my heart. I was lost, and I knew it. My grandmother, who we lived with, often said, you know, the world always needs more ditch diggers. That was kind of the derogatory term, because if you didn't have an education, you didn't have any skills, you dug ditches for a living. I found out now that ditch diggers actually make a lot of money, you know, so that's a pretty good job. But in her eyes, that was a wasted life. The world always needs more ditch diggers. That was kind of thrown at me. But I kept reading the Bible, trying to find where Ken was wrong, and I couldn't. And God kept working in my heart, showing me that I was lost and I needed Jesus. 
And summer when I was 16, I couldn't resist anymore, and I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I recognized that I was a sinner, and I was lost, and my life had no purpose and no direction apart from Christ. The next year, I began to attend an after-school Bible study with Ken and others that had come to know the Lord. In a three-year period, almost 100 students came to know the Lord in my high school. And then Ken got fired for having after-school Bible studies. Took it to arbitration. He won. They needed to reinstate him. He chose not to come back. He just felt it was a poisoned environment. But Ken always emphasized with us in this Bible study three things. Personal Bible study witnessing to others, and tithing. I'm not sure where the three came from. I understood personal Bible study, reading the Word, because I couldn't get enough of it. I went up to Woolco at the time. Remember the department store, Woolco? I had no idea. I'm looking for a Bible. I bought a Bible for $3. I still have it. That was my first Bible, and I would take it to high school every day, walk around with it in class. People thought I was just nuts. My friends thought I was just nuts. My family thought I was just nuts. You went from one extreme of rebellion and anger and partying to this religious side. It's yet another fad. I remember walking to school one day. I got on the bus. I took a TTC. A friend of mine had a girlfriend that lived in our neighborhood. She got on the bus. Often we would ride the bus together. And we were walking across the football field in the winter. And she said to me as we walked across, she said, Bill, you have to stop all this Jesus stuff. She says, people are laughing at you. You're not going to have any friends left if you keep this up. And we walked across the rest of the field in silence. And at that point, I remember thinking, is this worth it? And I did lose friends. <clears throat> I stopped getting invited to the parties, to the different activities that they were doing, and it didn't bother me. It, it was hurtful in some ways. Lifelong friends just didn't want to talk to me anymore. But the Lord provided some other friends. But at the end of high school, Ken again emphasizing personal Bible study, witnessing to others, and tithing. I understood the two. I didn't understand tithing because I didn't go to church. I didn't understand what that concept was. We had our little group. We had our after-school Bible study. And Ken said, guys, I've taken you as far as I can. You need to get into a good church. And I would suggest a good Fellowship Baptist church because he was Fellowship Baptist. So I went to look for a Fellowship Baptist Church and just went there one day and walked in, and that began my involvement in church. I'm not sure why I can't emphasize those three things, but I put sort of a, a life value to them for myself. Personal Bible study, reading the Word, studying the Word for myself, self-feeding, witnessing to others, serving using what God did in my life to share with others. Tithing, I think it's just recognizing that all that I have belongs to God. And God has given me gifts. Some are financial, some are not. But I need to be using those for his glory. You know, my life changed dramatically in terms of where I was going, what I was thinking, what my future was. It changed dramatically in terms of my friends, my family that thought I had all gone nuts. I remember, you know, telling everybody I could that if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to hell. Uh, my mother didn't appreciate that very much. And uh, I had my brother jump out of a moving car once because he just had to get away from the preaching. As I slowed down for a, an intersection, he actually opened the door and jumped out. So I just can't, you got to stop that Jesus talk. At the end of high school, Ken helped me connect with a good church. But his influence that he decided to use this opportunity to reach a group of rebellious teenagers. This was his mission field. Ken never attended Bible college or seminary. He wasn't a pastor. His was a life in Christ that influenced many. And he decided that God placed me here as a high school teacher. This is going to be my mission field. These are my students. And I think that's an important lesson for us as men. Wherever God places you, is by his divine will, and that's your mission field. The classroom, business, factory floor, wherever you are, you are a witness and God brings men into your life. It was at that time that I was fully convinced that God had called me to serve him in some aspect. I wasn't sure what that meant. I wasn't understanding of what ministry was, but I knew he called me to something more. 
Uh, after high school, I was interested in, in design and architectural design, and I began to study after that. And, and after a year, I had a company offer me a job and offered to pay my way through school, through night school, to finish my degree, which I said, that sounds great. I started working, but it just wasn't what God was calling me to. And after a couple of years, I resigned and went to the cheapest Bible college I could find in Canada. And my mother read my, I had a, a, an art table in my, my bedroom because I, I did some offline work. And my mother read my, she was cleaning my room one day, read my resignation letter and just went ballistic. Again, you've not only gone religious wacky, now you're throwing a, what could be a great career down the tubes. You flushed it down the toilet, she told me. And I said, but that's okay, because Jesus called me. Got on a Greyhound bus and went out to New Brunswick. Had no idea where I was going. Found the cheapest Bible college in Canada. I'm not sure why the Lord took me there. When I got off the bus, I grew up in Toronto. The bus let me off and I said, hold on, this isn't the place. This is a school. He says, yeah, it's up there on the hill. And I said, where? There was a few outbuildings. Like I was in culture shock. But it, it worked out all, all right. But it's interesting that Ken kept in contact with me all through that time. It wasn't just when high school ended, he lost contact. He continued to phone me, to encourage me. Uh, when we went to the field as missionaries, Ken and his wife Joan supported us financially, wrote us constantly to encourage us. When we were home in Canada, we would get together and have dinner with he and our girls. And, you know, what a privilege for me to introduce my three girls to Kent to say, this is the man that led Daddy to Jesus. This is why we have a family that worships God, because this man decided that an angry 15-year-old teenager was worthy. He wasn't a write-off. He wasn't a loser. It was a good investment. And I often think of that, how often we look at people on the exterior and say, there's no way. You know, I stand before you today because of Ken's influence in my life. It's interesting that when my second daughter was in university, she was in a Bachelor of Science nursing program up at Nipissing, and during the summer she worked at a nursing home as a personal support worker, because if, if you're in a nursing program, after your first year you qualify as a PSW. And she worked in the dementia section because the area of nursing that she was interested in was end-of-life, palliative care, dementia. And so she would work at this nursing home, and she would come home and tell us stories of all the, the people that had dementia and what went on that day. And she said, oh, Dad, you'd love it. There's this old guy in there, big man. He had always walking around with his Bible, and his name is Ken. Now, something hit me because a couple of years earlier, I'd kind of lost contact with Ken and Joan. And one time, Joan called me, and she said, Bill, just want to let you know Ken's not doing well. He's got early signs of dementia. A little while later, she said, Bill, just want to let you know, we've had to put Ken in a home. We just can't have him at home anymore. I said, I'm sorry to hear that, Jonah. And we kind of lost contact for a couple of years. We went back to the field, came back next time for a home assignment, and just didn't have any contact. So then my daughter's telling me about this old guy. He's a big guy. His name is Ken, and he's always carrying around a big black Bible. I said, is his name Ken Holman? She said, it is. How do you know? Here my daughter was caring for Ken in the last stages of his life, and he died shortly after that. And I thought, how interesting that the Lord used the man to bring me to the Lord, and now my daughter was caring for him at the end of his life. I still think of the, the influence of a life in Christ. Ken also came from a rough upbringing, came to know the Lord actually got married to a Christian girl who was backsliding at the time, not walking with the Lord. She came back to the Lord, and through her influence, he came to know the Lord in his late 20s. So Ken had an understanding of what it was to be rebellious, to be walking in the way I was walking. But his was the influence of a life in Christ. I saw Jesus in his life. The second man in my life's name was John. And this is the influence of a mentor. When I began attending the Baptist church in Scarborough that I went to, John became a spiritual father to me. Like my own father, John was Scottish, so we had a, a natural connection. He was probably the same age or around the same age as my dad would have been. I was still very rough around the edges in terms of church culture, of what, what church behavior was. I didn't have the uniform. I didn't have the suit and the tie, and I would show up in 
jeans and a, a sort of nice shirt because that's all I had. I didn't recognize or realize that you had to have a uniform to go to church back then. I still had my Wuckel Bible, so that was good. But John became what would be a mentor in my life, and he would often have me over to his place, listen to my frustrations. Although I had become a Christian, there was a lot of baggage that I had to deal with, still a lot of anger, still a lot of dysfunctionality in our home. Um, my mom, and I, I think, you know, in honesty, she probably had a, a breakdown of some form when my dad died and, and really went into a five-year span of just crying and staying in her bedroom and, and not really engaging with her, her two sons. My grandmother pretty much raised us. But, and then my mom kind of went and she ended up having three different husbands, married three, buried three. I always joke that if she'd played her cards right, we'd be you know, sitting pretty. But she married good men and um, not Christian men. And um, at the end of her life, I believe she came to know the Lord uh, on her deathbed. Uh, and that was my prayer, that the Lord would give me. Because it, we had a strained relationship for so many years that as she was dying of cancer, I prayed, Lord, give me an opportunity to clearly share the gospel with her and have her just understand that there is something more than this life. And I think he did that, and I'm, I'm looking forward to see that result when I get to eternity. But as I went to church... I was still really rough around the edges, a lot of home conflict. I was still very religious. My family's still very anti-religious. Uh, I had asked to borrow the car to go to church on Sunday. I was told, no, you can't use the car. So I would hike up and take the TTC in the wintertime. But John would have me over to his place. He would listen to all of my frustrations, and he would really just help me understand what it was to be a Christian. In his book, Mentoring, Bob Beale says this, Mentoring was the chief learning method in the society of artisans where an apprentice spent years at the side of a craftsman learning not only the mechanics of a function, but the way of life that surrounded it. And that's what John taught me as my mentor. He demonstrated what it was to be a Christian man, what it was to walk with Christ, what it was to have a value and an integrity as a Christian. He helped me mature in my faith. He was the Sunday school superintendent of our church. This was a large church of about 500 people and probably had that many or more kids in the Sunday school program. We had a bus ministry with five or six school buses that picked up hundreds of kids each Sunday. And John also taught the College of class, which I was a part of. And one day our church was kind of on the edge of Scarborough. A new strip plaza was being built and it opened up. I went there one Sunday and a donut shop had opened up. Now, this was a time before there was a Tim Hortons on every corner. So a donut shop was a big deal. So I got to church early as usual because I had to ride the TTC and the bus always arrived early. And a couple of my friends there said, hey, Bill, the donut shop opened. Let's go get a donut. We'll just skip Sunday school and come back for church. Well, I was used to skipping school and stuff. So I thought, great, let's go. So we sat there, ate our donuts, and uh, showed up for church and thought, oh, you know what, let's not walk in the front door. Everybody will see we weren't at Sunday school. Let's walk in the side door, which we did. And who was standing there? John. And he just looked at us and he said, you three, my office, tomorrow, 5 o'clock, dinner at Swiss Chalet. And John was a realtor. So we thought, well, we're going to get a big chew out, but we're going to get dinner, so let's go. So the next day we showed up at his office and we went to Swiss Chalet and he said, boys, it's on me. Oh, great, I'm getting the rib and chicken combo now. If I'm going to get chewed out, at least I'm going to get a good meal, right? But the funny thing is, he didn't chew us out. He was concerned that somehow we thought or felt that Sunday school was boring or not relevant and that we skipped off. His concern was, how do I make my Sunday school class better so you don't skip off? And that said something to me. He wasn't angry with us. He was concerned for us. John was the Paul in my life. I was his Timothy. He was influential in helping me begin to serve in the church, to recognize that everybody has a place of service. I still had a really low self-esteem at that point. I didn't think I had any value. I was a Christian. I was thankful. But I recognized that I was kind of at the bottom of the totem pole in terms of Christians. I didn't understand a lot of church culture. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't have the right uniform. The only thing I had was the right Bible from Woolco. It was red, not black. But John was a Sunday school superintendent. He says, I want you to serve in the Sunday school. I want you to be the Sunday school secretary. And that's the most important job. And I thought, yeah, right. It's walking around class to class, picking up the attendance forms and checking off what teachers are there. 
And I kind of mentioned that to him, like, well, you know, you couldn't find like a, a one-legged blind guy to do that? Like, really? He said, this is important because these lists go back to the teachers at the end of Sunday so they can follow up with the kids that didn't show up for Sunday school that week. He said, this is very important that we know who's here and who's not here. And I began to recognize that service, whatever that service is in the church, is vitally important to the life of that community, that church family. So John was the Paul in my life. He helped mentor me into the lifestyle of what it meant to be a Christian man. He also helped me begin to serve by recognizing that any service to the Lord is valuable. In those early years, attending church and growing spiritually helped define my direction in life. And I shared a lot with John on, on my, my desire to serve, my, my thoughts of what I need to do with my life. I was still the only Christian in my family. They continued to think that I had joined some religious cult. I went to Bible college. That was even worse. I talked to John often about this. And when I resigned, I had talked to him. I remember having this conversation about, and he said, you need to step out in faith. If God is calling you, and he said to me, I believe he is, you need to step out in faith, and God will provide. So I quit. Quit my job, resigned, packed up my stuff, went out to New Brunswick. It was interesting that when I was there, I met this girl, kind of had my eye on her, and we got talking, and uh, I had also you know, been thinking, the Lord is calling me, what am I going to do? And there was an opportunity to go to Peru for a couple of months in a short-term mission experience. And I just prayed about it and really felt that's where God was leading me. And as I talked to this girl, it was interesting that, well, she had also gone to Peru on a short-term mission experience a couple of years earlier and felt the Lord was calling her into missions. And so I went to Peru, I, I spent that summer, I prayed about it, and I really felt that God was calling me to be a missionary in Peru. And, and I also prayed a lot about that girl I met, and after much pleading and begging, she agreed to marry me. And we've now been married for 33 years, have three daughters and seven grandchildren. But it was John's influence in my life as a spiritual mentor that helped me see what God was doing in my life and helping me get direction of where I was going. He helped me grow spiritually. He helped me understand and begin to exercise spiritual gifts. But he was a mentor who guided me in what it was to be a Christian man. John often would say to me, long retired, he said, I praise God for what God has allowed you to do with your life. And it was an encouragement to me. Uh, John went to be with the Lord several years ago after a, a lengthy illness. The third man in my life was Warner. And Warner was the influence of a spiritual friend. Although he was old enough to be my father, Warner had a personality that was youth and young at heart. He didn't act his age, if you say that. He and his wife became good spiritual friends to Michelle and I and helped influence my ministry development. After uh, my summer in Peru, Michelle and I were married and decided to take a year off school to just learn to be married, and really discern where God was calling us. We ended up transitioning to a different Bible college in Western Canada. And Werner and his wife were the associate directors of the mission agency we ended up joining. Although Werner was not concerned or not trying to recruit us to his mission. He was trying to recruit us to where was God calling you? What was the pathway? In fact, we looked at several mission agencies. We actually went to the training camp of New Trides up in Durham because we thought we were, you know, aligned with them. But they didn't work in Peru. We felt called to Peru. But God, God was moving in my life, and Werner was really shaping us and helping us look at where God was calling us. Werner challenged me to understand my gifting and how I would exercise that gifting. And over the years... Werner and his wife became good friends who often challenged us in our faith and helped give us sort of those mid-course corrections as we went along. When Michelle and I first went to Peru, we went to a little remote village in the Amazon along the Napo River and began church planting among the Naparuna people. Our co-workers had been in that area for about a year and a half. We were the second missionaries in that area. In the late 1980s, Peru had a... Um, a wave of terrorism with two different groups, the Shining Path in the south and the MRTA in the north. 
and that most of the areas where our mission worked were red zones, and we had to evacuate several areas. So we opened this new ministry up in the wilds of the Napo River. Paul and Liz were the first ones out there. A year and a half later, we arrived, and we thought, you know, this is God's calling. We're going to be 30 years in this little village and uh, we built our house, we lived in the village, we hunted and ate local jungle meat and fish from the river, went down to Iquitos about every six weeks to buy supplies. I often joke that uh, I really used the word eventually because our house was never fully built. Every time Michelle would ask me something, I said, yeah, eventually we're going to get that. Eventually that'll get done, but eventually never came. But we had a, what I thought would be a great ministry among the Naparuna people, uh, began to learn Quechua language, is language they spoke, but they, they spoke Spanish as well, so we could get to different villages. Um, but God had other plans for us. You know, we were in a malaria area. area. Um, we all suffered with malaria. Michelle had malaria four times and had what they call chronic malaria, had cerebral malaria plus the common. And at the end of our four-year term, it was really difficult for us to see ourselves going back to that village and that environment just for the health concern that it was. And so we began to pray, Lord, you called us here. We anticipated spending 30 years in this little village and retiring. What are you doing? And we began to share with others, and we began to pray, and the Lord led us to another jungle. This time it was the concrete jungle, the capital city of Lima. And though it was hard to leave the jungle, the ministry we loved, I see how God used that as preparation for the next step. And I fully believe that where you are now is not the end of the road. This is God preparing you and me for what's next. We went to Lima, began to church plant, began to do leadership development. And interesting, when I began to teach at the Lima Seminary, a number of students came from provincial or jungle areas. And I had an instant connection with them. I understood their life. I understood their, their language when they talked about how they had to live and eat and fish and hunt, and how illness would be a big thing, that illness in the city is not a big thing. I understood that because when I was in the jungle, I had an acute appendicitis one night, went to bed with a stomach ache that got worse and worse. And uh, being the good missionary, I had a copy of the book, Where There Is No Doctor, did the self-examination, realized I've got an appendicitis. So I waited most of the night suffering. My, my wife wasn't very kind to me. She told me it was just gas. Uh, she later repented. But about five in the morning, I decided this is an appendicitis and I have to do something about it. I'm in a remote Amazon village. I hiked up now. The blessing that we had in this village, our village was about 1,000 people. It's not a small village. Um, it was the, what the government considered the kind of district capital, that area of the Napo River. So we had a Catholic medical clinic with two doctors who were also Catholic priests. So I thought, I've got to get up to the clinic. You've got to call the plane in. You've got to get me out of here and get me down to Iquitos before I die. So I, what should have been like a 10-minute hike up to the, the clinic took me 45 minutes because I was already hallucinating. I kept wandering off into the jungle, getting lost, and have to get back on the trail. Anyway, I got to the clinic. He took one look at me and said, no, you're not going to live more than two hours. This has to come out now. So on a wooden table under local anesthetic, they took my appendix out. And uh, I'm still alive. The story is a lot longer, but I'm alive today. So when I went to Lima and I was teaching and I was interacting with students that came from jungle areas and provincial areas, I had an instant connection with them and my heart went out to them. So I began church planting in Lima, working at the Lima Seminary. Uh, later on, I was asked to be the field director for our mission, later on the South American director. But when I was at the seminary, one of the things that burdened my heart was the spiritual development of men, as Ken had been in my life, as John had been in my life as Werner had been in my life. So I went to the seminary and I wrote a project because I said, listen, I believe you have great teaching and a great education. The missing element is the character development. One of the reasons I often use this book, A Work of Heart, for leadership development is because it's one of the only books that I've read, and I read a lot of books, that talks about leadership development not as skill set development, not how to be a better pastor, how to be a better speaker, but it's, it's character development, how to develop your character as a man. And that's what I wanted to be to these students. They're, they're getting a great theological education. You know, the guy that's teaching Greek and Hebrew has his PhD from a great university in the United States. They're getting a great academic education. 
what I want to bring is the character development. So I wrote this project to the seminary, and they let me do it, where I took a group of five to eight guys. I called it a spiritual mentoring group. It was by invitation only. And I began to work with these guys for several years. My first group, Javier, Wedding, Lucho, Rino, and Gamaliel, I still keep in contact with those guys. I'm now the Ken and the John and the Werner in their life. Um, when I met them, they were all young men. A couple of them were married. Now all of them are married. They have children. Uh, Javier has a teenager, and that makes me feel really old. But I continue to have an impact in their life, even though I'm not in Peru. And that's always been part of my passion to see men's group in churches, is that we grow not just in our skill set, but in our character. Three men have had an impact in my life of who I am today. And the interesting thing is, Ken had three children. They're all daughters. John had three children. They were all daughters. Werner only had one child, and she was a daughter, and the Lord made me the father of three daughters. I grew up in a family of just my brother. My mom had six brothers. Most of my cousins are boy cousins. I didn't know what to do with a baby girl. But God placed men in my life who were fathers of daughters that taught me what it was to not just be a man, not just be a Christian man, but to be a Christian husband, to be a Christian father, to be the leader in my home. And this is where leadership begins. It's not in the church and what you do. It's leading in your home. I often hear people talk about decisions their kids are making and kind of justify it by saying, well, the church didn't have a good youth group or we didn't have a youth pastor at the time, so it was kind of hard. And I have to be careful with my tone or my words, but I want to say, your responsibility. You're the father. You need to lead your children. You need to lead your family. In fact, it's one of the questions I asked my son-in-laws, all three of them, on the, at the interview. Now, I always joke about the interview, but if we got to the interview, you're 98% in. It's just a bit of a formality, but I need to you know, understand a few things. And one of the questions I asked the boys, how are you going to lead my daughter spiritually? Because that is your role now, and you have a great responsibility. Because if you don't lead your family well, and you don't lead your kids well, nothing else matters about what you do or how much you earn or the house you live in. But I really wanted to see men grow in spiritual leadership beginning in their home. And like Ken, I want my life to be a life in Christ that influences many for the gospel, to use the opportunities I have to win others, to be faithful wherever God places me. I thought I'd spend 30 years in this little village, Santa Clotilde, in the Rio Napo, in the Amazon region of Peru, and the Lord moved us to Lima, and I thought, okay, I'll spend 25 years here and be just as faithful and About 10 years later, the Lord moved us back to Canada when I was asked to become the executive director of our mission in 2007. I said, okay, well, then I'll I'll be here. And then 11 years later, the Lord said, now, here's the next step. I want you to move into this role with the AGC. And I know that this is not the end. I don't know what's next. I'm not looking for a next role. Um, But I recognize that we're all on a journey, and that journey doesn't end until he calls us home. But like John, I want my life to be a mentor to others. I want to help challenge men to grow in who Christ made you to be individually because we're all different. We all have different gifts and abilities, but we all need to grow in that likeness of Christ. And like Warner, I want to be a spiritual friend that challenges others to reach their potential for Christ and then release them to do God's ministry wherever he calls you. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 19, which has been one of my life verses. When I was in seminary, I wrote my thesis around this verse. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus didn't just invite the disciples to follow him. That was common in his day. You as a rabbi had more influence and more prestige and status depending on how many disciples you had. But Jesus called men for a purpose. I will make you. Fishers of men. There is an aspect of mentoring and preparation for a task. There's an invitation to follow Jesus, but there's an invitation to participate with Jesus in that task. And that's what he's calling each of us to today. Being men of influence in our world and our sphere of activity begins by being men willing to make a difference 
by being men willing to walk with God. I often say that every man needs three men in his life. You need Paul. You need that spiritual mentor, that spiritual father, mature in the Lord. You need a Barnabas, that spiritual friend who will challenge you. That's the iron sharpens iron in your life. Who's challenging you today? Who's challenging your thoughts? Who's challenging your growth? Who's challenging your activities? And you need a Timothy. You need to be pouring your life into somebody, replicating that next generation. And so the question I would leave you with is this. Who are the men, regardless of your age, who are influencing and challenging you today? But also, who are you challenging? Who are you influencing? Because my story is really the story of the men God brought into my life to shape a very rebellious, very angry, very confused teenager. And through that process and that journey of 40 plus years now has brought me to the place where I am. And I look back and I'm just humbled how the Lord didn't see me as a waste, didn't see me as worthless. That's what I thought of myself. That's why I was doing the things I was doing. That's why I was engaged in the activities I was participating in. That's why I didn't care what happened to me. And at at a point in my life where I probably could have sunk lower, the Lord intervened and he used some key people. And I often think about the people God brings into my life. What am I doing with that opportunity? And I guess that's my challenge to us today as men. Whose life are we influencing? And what lives are we allowing to influence us today in this continued journey as men? Never before has manhood been under attack in our culture. Never before has manhood been misunderstood. Yet we have a biblical model. And we have a group of men that challenge and help one another grow. Um, I knew nothing about parenting because I didn't have a good example. I certainly knew nothing about raising little girls. But God brought men into my life who demonstrated and showed me what it was to be a man, to be a husband, to be a father, but to be a disciple. And that's where I want my life to continue to go. Let me just pray for us. Father, thank you for what you've done in all of our lives that have brought each of us here today. And may you challenge us continually, Father, to grow as disciples, to grow as men, mature men that walk with you, that lead our families well, that serve our church and be an example to our community. And Lord, I pray that you would give us much wisdom for the opportunities that you give us, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear your voice and that we might look upon others as you look upon them with compassion and grace, recognizing that you created each of us. And just pray that you would give us much wisdom in these days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.